had a great weekend. It's been a delight to have Alton and Johanna Garrison with us. Johanna, would you just stand real quick and let our church welcome you today? Would you thank Johanna for being here? These are, these are some of my favorite people in the world. Uh, I love the Garrisons. Uh, I first got introduced to Alton, this is absolute truth, at my dad's church when I was probably like five or six years old. So I've known him for a long time because I'm really old. I am already in the senior group, by the way. I made that last year. He has served in many great positions of leadership uh, throughout his, his ministry. And uh, he's now got maybe the most important assignment that he's ever had, leading churches across our nation, actually around the world, in a recalibration, revitalization process recapturing the roots of who we are from the book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, he was here with some of our church yesterday, and we're going to be rolling out some stuff first of the year on that. It's things we already do, we know, but just great reminders of what the purpose of the church is. How many of you know that Jesus is the architect, the builder, and the sustainer of the church? So we, we're in pretty good hands. He's going to take care of us. Alton Garrison's a dear friend, great preacher. Would you give a good OFA welcome as he comes today to bring the word to us? Black. Good morning. I am on the backside of the life cycle. So I have some peeps here. This group over here is on the front side of their life cycle. Here's my goal for this service. If you could appreciate our wisdom and experience, and we can appreciate your zeal and innovation, if we could leverage those together, we can take the world. <laughs> If you believe that, go ahead and give the Lord a hand. Amen? We're here today to honor those of us that are on the descending side and to celebrate those that are on the ascending side. But it takes all of us to do it because together we're better. Amen? I enjoy being with you. This is a lovely place. This is a great atmosphere. I love, I, I was here earlier, right after you moved into this sanctuary. But isn't this, I, I know it, it, it's something you see every, every week, but we don't. Johanna's looking around a while ago, and she goes, wow, this is fantastic. I'm glad that God has a house, but you're the church. Aren't you glad God has a house, but you're the church? Amen. And uh, we had a little say in at our church when I was pastor. It's not real intellectual, but it's pretty descriptive. Nothing falls in place but dirt. Nothing falls in place but dirt. What do you mean, Alton? Well, I just mean that all that you see and everything you heard and what you feel, it's not accidental. There are people who are leading and forming and formulating this culture. And there's a great team here, but you have great pastors in Bruce and Janet. They, 
they are great leaders, and I know you know that. But I want you to just say, God, we thank you, and give them a wonderful round of appreciation today because nothing falls in place but dirt. <laughs> it's a joy to be with them. I, 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 he's a great leader. I was in a meeting some time ago. I won't tell you where. I don't tell you what it's about. But in my mind, the lady, the meeting had kind of got off track and it had gone down a road that had been, that road had gotten too long. I don't know if that makes any sense, but your pastor had the leadership skill and the ability to stand and redirect the whole thing. Just his voice in a very short period of time. It was done with, 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 with feeling and it was done sincerely but he got everything back on track. That's the latest thing I can tell you that I appreciate about him because I was tired of the direction it was going. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> I won't tell him what it was all about. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, I thought you did. <laughs> this group that we mentioned a moment ago, us seniors, we're passing a faith to another generation. And my question is, how are we doing? We believe about 80 of this group is going to go to a youth camp tomorrow. And I'm excited about that because I believe that that is a special concentrated point in time where so many young people get their spiritual blessing in a way that they don't get it any other place. So would you pray for them? We're going to do it formally, but I want you to pray for them, that God will use them, bless them, anoint them, change them, touch them, transform them. And I'll tell you why. We are not responsible for what I'm about to say, but we didn't cause it, but we have to deal with it. David Kinneman, who is the president of Barna Research, wrote a book recently, and in that book he says that in virtually every study we conduct, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. Now, this is not the Assemblies of God he's dealing with. He's dealing with the whole evangelical world. Isn't that a sad statement? What he's saying is people don't... Act like they say they believe. Well, he proves it. Kenneman says that young Christians in the evangelical world, 23 to 41, believe that they have a right to do things their way. 59% believe it is morally acceptable to cohabitate, live together without being married. 44% believe that Sexual activity outside of marriage is acceptable. 35% believe it's okay to get drunk. 28% believe it's okay to have a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. That's the world this group is facing. That's not the world we grew up in. So if we're going to help them survive in this world, what are we going to do? We've got to pass a faith 
to them that is the faith that is biblically based and has not been watered down by the culture of this world. Now, it's okay to get a little excited. It's okay to get zealous because I'm telling you, if we don't get incensed, I'm looking for the right word, we're going to be placating and allowing what we don't want to see happen. So how do we deal with this? I could go on and give you more stats. I think I've sufficiently told you that this generation is facing something that no other generation has ever faced. So I'm going to suggest today that the way that we help them best is to take them to the basics. And I'm going to deal with three basic things today that if you don't understand the Bible at all, these three things will give you an overview of what's happening, what will happen, what needs to happen, and the foundation on which we should stand. I'm going to talk about the plan of God. I'm going to talk about the price that Jesus paid And I'm going to talk about the power that's available to us today. The last two words, the last two words of the Old Testament, it ends in a curse. Because of sin and disobedience, a curse was placed upon the entire human race. 400 years after the Old Testament closed, God spoke and the New Testament began. After 400 years of silence, what ended in a curse, the New Testament began with these two words, the book. The first two words of the New Testament have a direct bearing on the last two words of the Old Testament. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I can tell you if we're going to pass on a faith to the next generation, it must be rooted and grounded in the word of God. This book called the Bible is great because of its author. There are many books, both sacred and secular, but there's only one book that God wrote He breathed through 40 men over a period of 1,600 years. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In Genesis chapter 1, nine times it records, and God said. In Malachi 23 times it says, and God said. Isaiah claimed divine inspiration 40 times. In Jeremiah, there are over 100 instances where it says, thus saith the Lord. In the Pentateuch alone, the first five books of the Old Testament, 560 times it says, and God spoke. In the Old Testament, accumulatively, 3,800, 3,800 times it says, and God spoke. I'm telling you, the Bible is the Word of God. We need to understand it, study it, and live by it. Why is it great? It's not only great because of its authorship, it's great because of the power that it imparts when we read it and digest it. Something happens in me. Something happens to me when I read the book. Your strength Your ability to have victory depends exclusively and entirely on how much of the Bible you have gotten inside of you. Not just what you have seen or maybe heard, 
but what you have experienced. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 14 says the word is a devouring flame. Jeremiah 23, 29 says the word's like a crushing hammer. Zechariah 37 verse 7 says the word is like a life-giving force. Psalm chapter one, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says the word is like a saving power. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 says the word is like a defensive weapon. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word is a probing instrument, quick and powerful. The Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This book called the Bible is great because of its subject. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40, verse 7, declaring that the Old Testament is written about Jesus. The entire panorama of Scripture has an overriding, continual, central theme. The incarnation and the crucifixion. The incarnation and the crucifixion. This was the plan of God from the beginning of time. The incarnation is the person of Christ. Gives mankind the ability to see and understand God's nature, his character, his attributes. God became a man that we could understand what God is like. Martin Luther said, if you would see God, you must look into the face of Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of his glory. He is the express image of his person. See, this plan was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It was foretold by the prophets from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the book of Malachi. It was foreshadowed by the priests, the prophets, and the kings. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. This book describes the person of Christ, a prophet to reveal God to mankind. A king to have authority and rule, not over the nations at first, but over our nature. Revelation chapter 22, the book focuses on the fact of the incarnation of the Son of God to reveal what God is like. The Bible also describes the purpose of Jesus' coming. He was not only a prophet and a king, but he was also a priest, a high priest who came to redeem us back to God. If it wasn't for the Son of God, we wouldn't understand how good God is, how powerful God is, how wise God is. I want to know what God is like. I want to know not only what he's like, I want to know what he did for me. Of all the babies born to live, Jesus was one exception. He was born to die. He told Pilate, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. Fourteen times before they drove the nails into his hands and his feet, fourteen times, he told the disciples he was going to be crucified. The shedding of blood for sacrifice and covenant was established in the Old Testament 
1446 B.C., the Israelites, as you well know the story, left after 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And when they left Egypt, they instituted a sacrifice. And every household offered a lamb. And that shed blood of that lamb protected the firstborn from the death angel. This was the institution of the blood sacrifice for the covering of sin. The Old Testament, of course, it was not an entire lifetime of coverage, but it was incremental. And even though they shed the blood of these sacrificial animals, it was powerful and effective, but did not meet the ultimate standard of total redemption. At the door of the tabernacle, every morning and every evening, there was a sacrifice made. Sin's penalty was pushed ahead, but not totally eradicated. But heaven looked at it every time and said, it's not enough. So when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, he stopped every six paces and killed a ram to offer a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice, but it didn't meet God's standard. After a plague had killed 70,000 Jews, a threshing floor became an altar, and the plague was stayed, but that was still not enough to meet God's ultimate standard. When Solomon was made king, he sacrificed a 1,000 rams and a 1,000 bullocks and a 1,000 sheep, and he spilled 12,565 gallons of blood. The Lord said he would magnify Solomon he did, but the bloodshed was not enough. When Israel was without a true God, a law, or a teaching priest, Asa offered 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. He spilled 13,640 gallons of sacrificial blood on an altar, but it was not enough. Hezekiah restored religion and spilled 10,206 Gallons of sacrificial blood, but it was not enough. At Gibeon, Solomon entreated God and emptied 10,835 gallons of blood, but it was not enough. At the dedicatorial service of Solomon's temple, they killed 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen, and they spilled 290,270 gallons of blood, but it was still not enough. What was heaven waiting for? What was God trying to implicate? What was going to happen? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says, here's the answer. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Somebody say, praise the Lord. That's the reason you're redeemed today. That's the reason you're saved today, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There were mountains of sacrifice, and there were rivers of blood, but they were not sufficient. What was necessary was the blood of Jesus Christ. One single drop of that blood at Calvary, and all of us can experience a divine, supernatural redemption today. And we don't have to pay the price. We don't have to die in sin. We can be redeemed because Jesus paid the price. And no matter how bad we've been, what sins we've committed, his blood will wash us clean. Hallelujah. That's what it's all about. He is the lamb in Revelation that was slain 
from the foundation of the world. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Whenever you open the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to show you Jesus, his person, his purpose, through pictures and precepts and prophecies. You'll see him. You'll see him. He comes. He died. He lives. He saves. And he'll reign. It's all written in the volume of the book. What the hub is to the wheel, Christ is to the Bible. It revolves around him. All of its types point to him. All of its truths converge in him. All of its glories reflect him. All of its promises radiate from him. All of its beauties are embodied by him. All of its demands are exemplified by him. And all of its predictions are accepted by him. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the true vine. He's the good shepherd. He's the way of truth. He's the door of heaven. He's the faithful witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first and he's the last. Satan couldn't kill him in the cradle. Satan couldn't tempt him on the mountain. He could not hold him in the grave. He's not going to prevent him from coming to get us. He can't stop him from building his church. <laughs> you can't destroy him. There's nothing you can use to defeat him. If you try to drown him, he'll walk on water. If you try to put him in a grave, he'll burst forth from that grave. Hallelujah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's nothing that Satan could do to defeat him. You cannot impeach him, and he is not inclined to resign. Let's make him the King of kings and the Lord of lords today. Oh, hallelujah. Go ahead and praise his name. As wonderful as Jesus was, in just a few months Many of you will stand at the very places where he stood around the Galilee. And it's phenomenal. It's nothing like it in the world. If you've never been there, there's nothing like it to be where he was. As much as I'd like to have been there when he existed, would you like to have been there when he spoke the Sermon on the Mountain? Wouldn't you like to have been there when he raised Lazarus from the dead? I mean, I think I'd have loved it. It might have been a little weird, but I'd have loved it. Wouldn't you have loved it? I mean, I'd like to have been there. And when he healed blinded eyes and when he took one little boy's lunch and he fed all the thousands. What a, what a phenomenal. I mean, as wonderful as that was, even when he came back from the dead and walked out of his own grave, his own tomb. Can you imagine what they must have felt when their teacher, their beloved colleague, their friend, their mentor said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Let not your heart to be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So what he's actually saying is, I'm leaving, and you're staying. <laughs> and he, been, he said, there's going to be an adversary that's going to fight you. And I'm going to give you this assignment to go and make disciples of all nations. Now think about this. These guys, has, these guys haven't been 150 miles from home. And he's given this some assignment to, 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 to go and make disciples of all nations. Then he said, I want you to teach them, not just tell them, but teach them to observe. It's one thing to tell people something. It's another thing to say, are you going to make it happen? Is it going to happen? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do that? Teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. I don't know if you'd felt overwhelmed. They'd just been through the Passion Week. And they had seen him be beaten. They had seen a crown of thorns put upon his head. They had seen his back lacerated until it looked like bloody hamburger. They'd seen him nailed to a cross. They had seen him die to say his last words. They had been frightened that they were going to have a similar fate. And then he rose from the dead. And he was a powerful presence with them for a few days. And then he said, I'm leaving and you're staying but I'm going to send somebody to help you. He's going to dwell with you. And he's going to be with you. And he's going to be in you. I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. Luke 24, 49. And stay in the city of Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, Scripture says. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried into heaven. I've talked about the book. I've talked about the blood. And here's the blessing. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Is giving them a little direction as to where they're supposed to start with this discipleship-making process. You know, where do you start? He said, well, start in Jerusalem. And then go to Judea. And then Samaria. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, you're going to receive power. So today is Pentecost Sunday. So if we're going to have one generation passing the faith to another generation, the bridge of that transfer is going to be facilitated by what we're representing today on this day, but it's not just one day. We are living in the power of Pentecost because in the upper room, after a 10-day prayer meeting, 120 people received the power from on high. Hallelujah. And this, Peter said, is for you and for your generations and those who follow after you. And he quoted Joel, and it's for the young men and the young women and those that will see visions and those that will prophesy. I mean, we all are in this together. And the thing that holds us all together is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. He is our teacher. He's the one exalting Jesus. He's the one who empowers us for victory. He gives us ability to equip us and to give us the task of evangelism. So Pentecost 
means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it means harvest in its original term, and it's about evangelism. So we have power to pass the faith to the next generation. They have power to win their generation, and together we're going to prepare the church for a time when Jesus is going to step out and come and get us. Hallelujah. A.W. Tozer said, the Great Commission is not the first call to the church. He's referring to the scripture I just read when he concluded that Jesus had no desire for the disciples to do the work of God until they had a powerful encounter with God. So this generation over here and wherever else they're scattered in this building, they're... Their friends, their acquaintances, literally are preoccupied with the paranormal. Whether it's the latest Doctor Strange movie or an Avengers Twilight Saga or a Harry Potter series or... I mean, we sometimes think, you know, we, we can't have the Holy Spirit in our midst because something may happen that's strange and may scare them off. <laughs> See, some people think, well, I, I, when, I, when I was growing up, I saw some goofy stuff. But I've come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit didn't make those people goofy. They were goofy before they spoke in tongues. <laughs> That's just my theory, and you don't have to agree with me or not. But this generation has been introduced to superheroes and vampires and wizards and all kinds of characters, and even though they know these are mythical characters, there's something about this enhanced capacity, this extraordinary ability there's a, there's a fascination with this superhero status. And, and, and even though they know that this is mythical, they will pay billions of dollars to watch it over and over and over and over again. And there's this innate pull for something out there that they know exists. I think that the Pentecostal church has the greatest privilege we've ever had in the world. Because the power that this generation is hungry for can't be found in an automobile or a magic hammer or a certain suit or some kind of ability. I tell you, this power we already possess, and it's called the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> See, Jesus didn't just want to get something heard. He wanted to get something experienced. Something experienced. Discipleship outcomes. I, I, I'm excited about the disciplines that we enact in our church, like Bible reading and church attendance and tithing and witnessing. And I, I wrote a book on discipleship. I was given by the author, uh, by the uh, editors, I was given five spiritual disciplines to write on. One day, brother, I was looking at those five and they were all good disciplines, all good disciplines. They were like tithing, church attendance, witness, good disciplines. But I was looking at them and I thought, you know, I could do all five of these and not even be saved.
I'm not saying they're not good. I'm just saying that they may not be sufficient. So I'm part of a, of, of a, of a discipleship study group that's global in its construct. And we started with a blank sheet of paper saying, would you know a Pentecostal disciple if you saw one? Is a Pentecostal disciple different? So we wrote together, we wrote 40 spirit-empowered discipleship outcomes that cannot be fully attained and realized without the power of the Holy Spirit. See, there's something about the power of the Holy Spirit that puts us in another zone. But the primary purpose, it doesn't make us better than anyone else, but it makes us better than us. Think about that. The Holy Spirit doesn't make me better than you. It makes me better than me. (laughs) For greater is he that's within me than he that's within the world. So the primary purpose of spirit empowerment is to carry out the transformative mission of God among the lost. With the challenges facing the church today, it would be senseless to attempt to affect a change in the lives of people by merely utilizing our own ingenuity, our own intellect, and our own human effort. God has not abandoned us to that fruitless recourse. When we take hold of the Spirit's power, we're fully equipped and emboldened to confront our lost world with the hope of the gospel. Here's what the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit will help you do. Number one, it'll help you be more than you are. Well, I'm weak. I'm just got feet of clay. Yes, you're all of those things. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, Acts 1-5 says that's immersion. Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power. The Holy Spirit helped a shepherd boy become a king. A fisherman may become a disciple. A murderer become a deliverer. And a carpenter become a Messiah. Whatever you need, God has the power to help you become that. Another thing the anointing will help you do is to say more than you know. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. You know what that word means? It's a Greek word that means apothingomai. And it means spirit-inspired speech. So they were inspired by God and equipped by God and facilitated by God, God's Spirit, to speak 15 different languages, 15 different languages that they had not learned because of spirit-inspired speech. And those guys on the outside were looking on the inside, and they said, what does this mean? And Peter's, who's probably wasn't my choice to speak at that conference, <laughs> he had just denied the Lord not many days from before that, and yet he walks out, and something's happened to him. And so the same anointing that enabled them to speak in a language they did not know enabled him to speak in a language he did know. And when he started speaking, it says in verse 14, and he lifted up his voice. Another translation says he declared. If you go look that up in the Greek, it's the same word, apothingomai, and it means spirit-inspired speech. So he was anointed to preach a sermon that when he got done with that sermon, it was so powerful that 3,000 people got saved and baptized in one day. Amen. So you say, well, how does that help me? Have you ever sat in the service when Pastor Bruce was speaking and you think somebody told on you? I mean, think about that. Have you ever had that happen, Pastor? You walk out, somebody says, how did you know? Did you have a tape recorder in our house? 
Did you know what we were saying? I mean, there's something that happens. It's not weird. It's not spooky. It's not even. It's just that God will inspire a prophetic voice out of the pulpit to say things that they wouldn't ordinarily know. That's the Holy Spirit. You say, well, it worked for me. Think about, have you ever been sitting with a friend? And this friend was going through a struggle, and you didn't know all the details, but all of a sudden you begin to say stuff, and you don't even know where it came from, and they start crying, and they say, how did you know? How did you know? That's the Holy Spirit giving you things that you didn't even know. That's not audible voice. It's helping you say more than you know. So even when you feel unqualified, even when you feel like you can't do something, even when you think... I don't know which way to turn. The Holy Spirit helps guide you. He'll give you instructions. He is so much a part of your life. You don't have to keep praying for him to come. He's already here. If you feel inadequate, if you feel guilty sometimes, if you feel like a failure, let the Holy Spirit prophetically use you. To speak more than you know. But he'll also help you do more than you can do. Think about the anointing. The power. You say, for me, I'm not qualified. First John chapter 2 verse 20 says, you, I don't care what age you are. You have an anointing from the Holy One. The anointing you receive from him remains in you. So how will you succeed? You blend the strategy with the Spirit. I don't want to be irreverent. But if you could think about it just a moment and compare electricity with the Holy Spirit. I did a video. You can go online and see it. It's called I Value Online. And it's a seven-minute video. I was in a, a coal plant, and I traced how coal is, creates energy and compared it to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It goes from that coal plant into this transformer, into a breaker box, into an outlet. So the electricity, when it starts at its source, it is generic in its flow, but specific in its output. Think about that. Generic in its flow, specific in its output. So whenever you have a generic force becoming specific, how does it get specific? By what you plug in. So if you plug in a toaster, you get toast. If you plug in a CD player, you get sound or music. If you plug in a TV, you get a picture. If you plug in whatever you plug in, that's what it's going to empower, right? Plug in a heater, you get heat. You plug in an air conditioner, you get cool. Whatever you plug in. So the Holy Spirit is generic in His flow. But not all of us are wired the same for the same gifting, the same ability. We're all different. We're all wired differently. So whatever you plug in, that's what's anointing. So when you plug in, the teachers teach better. The singers sing better. So pastor was talking a little bit a moment ago about the, the worship leaders. And I leaned around to Johanna and said, man, they got great voices. They're harmony. But they, you can, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful. Whatever you plug in, that's what it anoints. 
The teachers teach better, the singers sing better, the preachers preach better, the deacons deek better, the wives wife better, and the husbands hush better. I didn't say hush, I said hush. <laughs> Ladies are already getting their hopes up. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit. Samson killed a thousand with a jawbone. Shamgar killed 600 with an ox goad. Gideon overcame odds of 450 to 1. 300 people defeated 135,000 with trumpets and clay pots and lamps. So today, we're going to believe God that those of us on the backside of our life cycle still have the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to minister to those on the ascending side of their life cycle so that together we can leverage wisdom and influence and innovation and zeal and energy and, and we can win the world. Amen. Pastor's coming. And we're going to close with a very special time as God needs godly parents and godly grandparents but not everybody has a family unit and there's people here that have no relatives close by or offspring close by but God may want some spiritual grandparents here today to decide I'm going to take on a spiritual project to help as we transfer this faith from one generation to the next Amen.